Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staber. We're talking about police reform this hour. Almost four years have passed since the murder of George Floyd, a black man from Minnesota whose death at the knee of a white police officer sparked national debate about police professionalism, racism, and funding. The debate also sparked calls for reform here in Ohio, and Republican lawmakers pledged to draft legislation to professionalize policing. Four years later, that bill has yet to materialize. But the calls for reform haven't stopped. Renewing after the deaths of Micaiah Bryan, Casey Goodson, Jalen Walker, Takaya Young. We're exploring what happened to police reform in Ohio, and we're starting with Columbus Dispatch reporter Bethany Bruner. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks for having me, Anna. Good to see you. And Cleveland.com State House reporter Jeremy Pelzer. Welcome Hi. to All Sides. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Bethany, I want to start with you. Calls for police reform, especially here in central Ohio, seem to renew every time there's an officer-involved shooting where people are divided over whether it was justified. Take the shooting of Takaya Young, Casey Goodson Jr. How have local law enforcement responded? Well, we've had a lot of changes over the last four years that have been echoed almost every time we have uh, an incident. You know, police, Columbus police in particular, have enhanced the body cameras they have. Columbus now has the Civilian Review Board that looks at allegations of misconduct by officers. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office now has body cameras. You know, we, we have seen a lot of things changing on a local level. But as you mentioned in your open, the, the state um, uh, overall overarching reform hasn't quite materialized the way we had been told it would. And the Columbus Police Department hired their first black woman chief in Elaine Bryant, correct? Yes. Back in 2021, um, Chief Bryant took over and she's been here um, leading the charge for a lot of the changes we've seen internally. And we're going to get into the Civilian Review Board and whether it's been effective in just a bit. But I do want to bring Jeremy into this conversation because in June of 2020, Governor Mike DeWine called on lawmakers to ban chokeholds in Ohio, increase de-escalation training, require recruits to pass psychological assessments, professional licensing. And I want to play a clip from his press conference back then. We must, must also, though, acknowledge that there are some officers, officers in Ohio who just are not cut out to be in law enforcement. And they have no place being in a position of trust. We must do more to make sure that officers who lack that professionalism and who show racial bias, who are biased, are not wearing a badge in the state of Ohio. Jeremy, how much of what the governor was calling for back then has materialized? The governor's police reform proposal at the time was basically dead on arrival in the uh, state legislature among his uh, fellow Republicans who dominate both the House and Senate. This has been an issue before George Floyd and before Mike DeWine. Uh, if you go back to 2014 with uh, when police killed uh, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, John Crawford uh, outside of Dayton at that uh, Beaver Creek Walmart, there was uh, a move then to have police reforms under then Governor John Kasich. Uh, that kind of fizzled out. Uh, the main the uh, Republicans who, again, control the state house, their main focus has been on, we need more training. So there has been an effort to increase training, and there has been more money put up to help with that training. But that's there's still no dedicated source of funding for that. 
Uh, Democrats, on the other hand, say that there's more, you know, there's more beyond training that need to be done, in, uh, done including uh, tinkering with qualified immunity for police officers, banning chokeholds, uh, et cetera, like that. Yeah, Governor DeWine is now calling for dedicated dollars in the upcoming capital budget to build a permanent training facility that would be low cost or no cost for departments across Ohio. Now, I know the capital budget is caught up in all other kinds of politics that we won't get into, but there's one-time funding in the current iteration, correct? Yeah, Ohio, uh, up until about a decade ago, a lot of police training standards, or pardon me, training was handled and paid for by the local departments. And if you are a department like Columbus or Cleveland, you have your own police academy and you can do this. But if you're in a smaller department, uh, in a more rural department, you can't really afford to have, you know, if you have an eight person staff, you have a fourth of your staff go to the state police uh, training academy in London, and and you have to pay for it. So there's really been an effort to put this state money to help those departments uh, afford and pay for this training. But as you said, this is a budget-to-budget thing. There's no dedicated source of funding. Uh, Some other states do have that source. Uh, Kentucky is the model for this, and they have had a dedicated source for years. Now, there's, uh, as you said, the governor's called for a dedicated source. Uh, House Speaker Jason Stevens has called for using some of the revenue from uh, the state's recreational marijuana revenue that's going to start coming in to be used for that. But so far, so far, there's no agreement about exactly how to do that. And Bethany, I want to circle back to that review board. So voters in 2020 approved revising Columbus's city charter to allow the formation of this independent oversight board. How has it been going since it got underway? So this board really had to build from the ground up. There was no framework in place when that charter amendment passed. So for a lot of 2021, the start of 2022, we saw that board being built up, the uh, framework being built for how members would be selected, what kinds of cases they were going to look at, all of that culminating in the first group of members being appointed and them going through training in terms of what they can and can't do. So within the last year or so, we've started to see them looking at cases. And this group, you know, it's important to remember while they are a review board, they are advisory. They do not issue discipline. They do not um, set policies. They make recommendations to Chief Bryant, who then can either adopt those policies or say, hey, maybe we're going to go a different route with this. And what we've seen so far is that there's been um, some some frustration with the review board in their meetings about not getting some follow through on what's happened when the case gets sent over to the police department. It has to work its way through the chain of command over there. So there is a bit of lag time. uh, But there's been some frustration about how all of that has played out so far. And and this is a new board. This is, you know, they're still in their infancy. So some of those things are still getting worked out. And there was some controversy that led to the resignation or removal of a board member who also had complaints about the fact that they get appointed by the governor and the city rather than elected by the citizens. Is that kind of a fair assessment of the drama around the board? Yeah, it, there, there were some there was an issue with some comments that that board member had made on their social media that implied that they may be uh, lent one more way against police 
uh, instead of coming with an impartial open mind to review each case individually. Um, and the, the board members are appointed by either Mayor Ginther or city council. They go through an application process, but there is some concern. And at that time, there was concern about not being voted on that these are people that are essentially handpicked by the elected officials. And civilian oversight boards aren't new. They weren't invented here in Columbus. Uh, the There was a review board in St. Louis created in 2015, and it was criticized largely as ineffective as late as 2023. They hadn't met in a year at that point, and the community members pointed to roadblocks after roadblocks. It seems like, you know, in researching for this uh, show, it seems like there's a lot of controversy over whether these do what they set out to do. That that's absolutely fair. You know, the a lot of these review boards are advisory. And so when people think oh review board, they think that this board's going to be able to come in and say fire that officer, keep this one, increase training here, do this, do that. And that's really not how they function. So you, a lot of the public support might fade or, you know, kind of roller coaster up and down as they're not seeing what they think should be happening um, just because of the role of these boards. And these boards have to operate within their respective city charters in conjunction with police union contracts, city codes and ordinances, all of these other things. They they don't operate in a vacuum. They operate in the, the, the larger context of city government. Jeremy, Attorney General Dave Yost announced yesterday afternoon, actually, right as I was writing the script for this show, (laughs) that he will be announcing a list of reforms from a commission tasked with developing ideas for the future of police training. What do we expect to hear from Yost this afternoon? Uh, I don't have a crystal ball into that, unfortunately. (laughs) You don't have the list ahead of time? Uh, Unfortunately, no. I uh, do know what similar announcements in the past have involved. Uh, a lot under after the George Floyd uh, protests, there were voluntary standards put into place uh, under the governor's uh, community police advisory board. So things like uh, law enforcement officials can only use deadly force like chokeholds to defend themselves or to, uh, you know, from serious injury or death. Uh, but those are voluntary standards. And uh they're used when departments are voluntarily certified. And when that those standards were put into place, about only about half of Ohio's police departments were voluntarily certified. And that was for various reasons, like uh, that they, uh, they had their own standards, so they didn't think it would be worth the effort or they couldn't afford it. Um, one thing I just wanted to um, tack on from what we were talking about just before is there's no guarantee that there's going to be state funding for police training, like between, because if there's no money for it in the budget, there are no standards. So between 2017 and 2022, there was no money to pay for training. Therefore, there were no training standards in Ohio. And while there's $40 million in the current budget, the two-year budget for this, if there's not money in the next budget, those training standards will go away. Yeah, and it's worth noting that the governor and the attorney general don't get to introduce or pass legislation. So Yost may be making a series of recommendations, but he's going to have to work with Republican lawmakers to get something passed. He will. And so far in this General Assembly, there have been no police reform bills passed. There haven't hasn't been a whole lot of legislation passed on anything. They've had a, a record low number of bills passed, at least since the 1950s. Uh, I haven't really seen any effort or, uh, you know, 
I haven't seen either uh, House Speaker Jason Stevens or Senate President Matt Huffman going out of their way to try to promote some sort of legislation on this. Uh, Bethany, there is a lot of talk over since 2020 about making police forces more professional. And Representative Phil Plummer, who will be on later in the show, talked in June 2020 about having a professional license for police officers and a statewide database for use of force reports. So, so other departments could see who's been disciplined, who hasn't. We have this for teachers, right? Like, so you can't move from district to district to district if you've been behaving badly. What has the Columbus Police Department said about these types of reforms? So a lot of the reforms that have been requested or recommended, such as the banning of chokeholds, um, have already been in place for Columbus for a long time. That that has already been their standard. Columbus Police has one of those academies you mentioned earlier where people from smaller departments come and have their officers trained at the Columbus Police Academy go through that about seven-month uh, academy course to become a certified police officer in Ohio. We don't have um, a statewide database in terms of you know bad officers or the bad apples, um, but the attorney general does have on his website. You can you know search for information about an officer, see what training, advanced training they may have gone through, what dates they were working at different departments. So the, the tools are there. You just need somebody within an HR department to do their due diligence to ensure that uh, somebody who maybe if there are questions about why they're hopping from department to department every year, maybe do some deeper digging to see what might be going on there. So the state does have a use of force database where they log police involved use of force uh, however, it's voluntary. So n departments can choose to add to the database, but they don't have to. Uh, what Phil Plummer's bill would have done would be to require this. And right now it's just voluntary. We also want to hear from you this hour. Do you have a story about how police uh, policing has impacted your life? Do you have an opinion on Columbus's Civilian Review Board or the police department in general? You can give us a call at 614 292-8513 or email allsides at wosu.org. Bethany, I want to circle back to Circleville. Okay. <laughs> uh, and what happened with the when the officer there released the canine and it appeared to be against the instructions of highway patrol. One of the things that really came to light in that and the Blendon Township shooting of Takaya Young was that these smaller departments didn't have the same level of training, say, as the Columbus police. Right. And and this is a problem we see across the state because there is no uniform standard. There's a base minimum, but some departments only do the minimum and some go above and beyond that. And so you'll vary from department to department. And each department is also going to have slightly different standard operating procedures for how they handle certain situations. And if you don't train together as agencies to figure out, OK, if this happens in the future, how are we going to work together? Who's going to take the lead? Who is going to be in charge of what? You get situations like we had in Circleville where you have, you know, people from multiple agencies and conflicting situations and people making decisions that maybe don't go the way they want them to go. You know, Blendon Township, you had a situation where an officer was in front of a vehicle and the vehicle moved. And that led to a shooting and 
whether or not that was the properly trained tactic, whether or not that was within the standard, if that officer, you know, acted appropriately or not is still under review. That hasn't been um, determined one way or the other, but it goes to show that the, the more training you have, and we hear this from law enforcement all the time, the more training you have, the more able your body is to respond in those high stress situations and have a better outcome for everyone. And Jeremy, the last question I have is about qualified immunity. There is a group in Ohio that was hoping to maybe put it on the 2024 ballot. Uh, Can you kind of walk us through what this is and why it's such a controversial topic? So in general, qualified immunity is that if a government or law enforcement employee uh, they cannot be sued or ha- by a person for something that they did in the regular course of their job. Uh, that so, if a police officer is, you know, uh, pretty rough in arresting you or or does something like that, that in general, they have immunity from prosecution or from civil lawsuits, uh, unless it's a situation like George Floyd, of course, where they uh, where it's different. Uh, the group that's trying to do this has tried many times to uh, advance a ballot proposal to have voters vote on it statewide, uh, and it's been uh, sent back to them by the attorney general's office many times because of uh, you, when you try to get something on the ballot, you have to submit summary language that would appear on the ballot to just summarize to voters what it would do, and uh, the attorney general's found every time that there's errors uh, or issues with how they're describing what their proposal would do. So it, it right now it's it's not gonna it looks like it's not gonna make the ballot. That was Jeremy Peltzer, a politics reporter for Cleveland.com. Welcome. Thank you so much for your time today. Not welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> and Bethany Bruner, a reporter for the Columbus Dispatch who covers police, breaking news and crime. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Anna. And if you want to talk to us and join this conversation about police reform in Ohio, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. Coming up, we're talking with Ohio State history professor Hassan Jeffries about the history of police reform. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking about police reform this hour and what changes Ohio has and has not enacted since the murder of George Floyd in 2020. History professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries teaches courses at Ohio State on the civil rights movement and black power movements. He's also the author of Bloody Londas, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Big picture question. What does it mean to police equitably? Mm. <laughs> From the perspective of African-Americans, historically, 
that has simply meant uh, engaging with African Americans as you would engage with white people. Uh, it's, it's really that it's really been that simple because the differences have been so stark. There was a lot of talk about police reform in the weeks and months following George Floyd's murder. Have you seen that talk manifest into meaningful reforms here in central Ohio? You know, it depends on where you look um, and depends on what we consider or when we take it depends on uh, what we look at when we think about what people were asking for. Uh, and so as you were um, mentioning during the, the uh, opening segment, uh, much of the police reforms that were requested um, by the general public, but even proposed by Democratic legislators uh, at the state level, haven't gone anywhere. Um, and so perhaps your next guest can can speak more uh, as to the reasons why that haven't been. Uh, we have seen some changes, uh, as was mentioned, the uh, police cameras, for example, um, you know, increasingly uh, being um, uh, assigned. So the proliferation of, of, of body worn cameras. But the reality is that those the, the, the changes that have occurred the cameras, the increased funding for policing and police training haven't fundamentally changed um, policing behavior. Uh, and this isn't just a central Ohio thing. Uh, when we look at the most extreme examples of um, sort of bad policing, if you will, um, you know, and, and police involved shootings, that number has not changed nation nationally. Over 1,000 people uh, get killed annually by police, and that number over the last 20 years has not changed, uh, despite everything that we've done. Um, so, you know, it begs the question of what are we doing? Uh, are we serious about what we're trying to do? And why haven't we been able to make a dent uh, in those numbers? I want to talk about the calls to defund the police. I think the slogan has come to mean very different things to to different mm -hmm. people. But I want to start with the idea of mission creep, the idea that officers are increasingly being asked to take on duties outside the scope of their profession and how that how does that fit in with the overall call to defund the police? Well, I, I think I would find agreement uh, or I, I, I think those within um, uh, police management uh, would agree with me here. They might not agree with anything else, but they would agree with here that we call upon sworn officers, we call upon police to do too much. And this was wanted to be social workers, to be uh, you know, sort of public safety officers. So, so, so to do too much, I, I think we do. And that was part of the critique um, of policing coming out of the George Floyd era. And and that was intimately tied up with the calls for defunding the police. In other words, you know, you know, are we over policed? I think we are. We got thirty five thousand sworn officers here in the state of Ohio. That's a lot of people. Uh, how can we better service the public? How can we better deal with mental health crises? How can we better deal with domestic violence? How can we, you know, domestic conflict? How can we better deal with addiction? Uh, you know, can we divert some of those funds away from standard policing to these other social services in a very real way? Um, many people were saying that, yeah, we have a policing problem, but what we, what we really have is a priorities problem. Uh, and that's where the calls for defunding the police uh, really were inspired by and what they were um, attempting to do, shift our priorities um, so that we can better serve the public. 
That reminds me of, so the Ferguson Commission that was created after the death of Michael Brown. They issued 189 calls to action, but only about a dozen were aimed at police reform. The rest of them were aimed at things like housing, public assistance, child care. And it kind of dovetails with what you're saying, that the majority of what they thought would prevent the deaths of future people was societal services. No, absolutely. I mean, we can't just as if we're talking about police reform or we're talking about education, you know, we these don't the problems that we face there don't exist in isolation. Right. We have to take a holistic society wide approach to solving these problems. So, again, there you go. I, I agree that we, we overburden police. But that doesn't mean that we throw more money at them. That doesn't mean that it's the, the solution to the problems of over-policing and bad policing is just more money for training. No, we have to look at how society addresses the problems that we face. And we also have to look at how we politicize the environment in which we live. I mean, I, you know, you, you turn on certain news channels, I'm afraid not only to walk out the door, but even to look in the mirror. Right. Uh, You know, worried about, you know, crime assaulting uh, or being a victim of crime. So, you know, we have to be clear. Homicides nationally are almost half of what they were at their peak uh, in in 1990. And you wouldn't know that. Right. You know, a little bump post pandemic, but come but trending back down. You wouldn't know that. So we got to deal with the realities uh, of the situation in which we find ourselves today. I want to take a call from Francis in Columbus. Welcome to All Sides. Uh, Yeah, my comment is I don't think the police would have half the problems they have if it weren't for the fact that we have a governor who allows just anybody to buy a gun, no restrictions, no training, no nothing. And the police are out there, and they have no idea who has a gun and who doesn't because it doesn't have to be revealed. And I think we're putting our our police in a bad situation and it has to do with society and not so much with them. Thank you. Well, Where Francis are... makes a good, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say Francis makes a good point about sort of gun laws and you will find many um, police officers or police unions that will, that will say, you know, we, our, our gun laws are too lax. They allow for the proliferation of guns, um, you know, by too many people. Right now, now in Ohio, let's be clear: you got you got open carry, concealed carry. Like you know, you can put a gun in the hand carry. of a constitutional carry. You can put the gun in the hand of a toddler, right? So now, if we know this, despite how we feel about it, if we know this, then police can't be trigger happy because they see a person with a gun, right? We live. I mean, we 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 saw the implications of that. Down in, you know, as was mentioned earlier, down in, in, in Walmart and in Beaver Creek, we see it most recently with Casey Goodson. Like, oh, well, he had a gun, d- d- you know, depending upon whether or not you actually believe what the officer was saying, because he was already caught in several lies uh, with regard in that. But just because a black person, a young black person has a gun right in this society means nothing. It doesn't mean that they're a criminal. So rather than assuming criminal intent, right, let's assume that they're just law abiding citizens. There's no reason not to not in this society. I think we would all like for police shootings to be clear-cut cases. The suspect fired a gun. The officer returned fire. But in so many of these situations, you know, the Meade trial, for example, dealing with the, the death of Casey Goodson, the jury couldn't reach consensus. 
why why do you think people look at these shootings and see totally different narratives? Like sometimes, depending on who you're talking to, it's almost like I'm hearing two different stories about two different incidents. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head, depending upon who you are talking to, right? Uh, because depending upon who you are talking to, let, let's let's remove police officers uh, from from the scenario for a second. Um, the experiences that people bring to the table inform how they understand certain situations and also how they believe police officers and others as they're testifying before them. The, the, the reality in this particular case, the Goodson case, is this was an all-white jury, right? Literally, it was an all-white jury. Uh, one black member who was eventually uh, dismissed or let go. So this was an all-white jury. And even some of those were like, look, you know, we, f- we find guilty in some, not guilty in others. But the perspective that people bring to the table, does this police officer seem believable is dependent a lot upon one's, his, one's personal interactions and broader understanding how police interact with people, right? And how you see people. We are conditioned to view black men in particular as dangerous and so this assumption that well this was i could see if i was in this situation that this that i would be concerned for my safety is a perspective thing that informs how people are willing to judge the innocence or guilt of of a police officer in a police involved shooting and that's that's unfortunately that's not scientific that's arbitrary and that's influenced by a long-standing a history of racist beliefs and assumptions that are projected onto black people, black and brown people. In the death of Michael Brown, there were no recordings. So people asked for body cameras. And we've talked about how body cameras have proliferated after the murder of George Floyd. They've asked for more diversity and Columbus offered buyouts, right? Trying to turn over some of their police force. We've asked for civilian oversight review boards, additional training. But as you said before, you know, the number of people being shot and killed by police isn't going down, which sort of leads me to the question, is chipping away at police reform the best way to save black lives? Well, I think the best way is to take a holistic approach. But even if we're going to chip away, we can't stop, right? I mean, we got we got to take a sledgehammer to some of this stuff. What good is it to have a civilian police review board if they have no teeth? What good is it to just pump money into additional training if the training is limited in terms of what we can do? What good is it to say, okay, we're going to prosecute um, or we're going to hold people accountable if we're not taking seriously the ways in which people approach and understand policing and relations across across the color line to say nothing about qualified immunity? So, you know, it's good to move in these directions. Uh, but it's it's not enough to say, OK, we've done this. You know, we can stop, you know, having cameras, having body worn cameras. All that has actually done is shown us what police do. Police actually haven't fundamentally changed, broadly speaking, generalizing to be sure, haven't changed their behavior. Right. Because showing what they've been doing has not produced real consequences. We would not have what happened in Memphis, Tennessee, with the killing uh, of that young black man by black by police, all of whom are wearing cameras and see what they're doing as not being a problem. And so until we create real consequences and change police culture, then simply broadcasting what they do, among other things, isn't going to be enough to move the needle. 
If you want to join our conversation on police reform this hour, you can give us a call at 614-292-8513. I want to take a call from Munir in Columbus. Welcome to All Sides. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I I appreciate this conversation being had, and I really echo the previous comment about the institution of policing. I come from the perspective of someone that wholeheartedly believes in the divestment of police funding. Even in the aftermath of everything that happened and is continuing to happen, we see the city of Columbus, our city government, uh, actually giving more money into policing and doing these things like more trainings and giving police skills that they just don't have because of the nature of the institution of policing and what the roots of policing are and what function that serves in cities, especially in communities of color and low-income communities. So I appreciate this conversation being had. Um, I think divestment of police funding is necessary because the culture of policing is inherently flawed as a system. Thank you for your comments. Um, Hassan, I, I want to ask a little bit about police training because, you know, after the incident in Circleville where the dog was released and it appears that state patrol was like, no, no, don't do that. And the guy from Circleville does it anyway. Um, there were concerns that maybe training the quality of training that they were getting there just wasn't comparable to the quality of training in other departments. Do you see a benefit to that kind of training? Yes. I mean, I, training is important to be sure. And one of the things that we have to understand in with policing in America is that it is localized and it is decentralized. Um, and so you're going to have these imbalances in the quality of policing, regardless of sort of everything else, just because when you localize something like policing, different local departments, um, different agencies are going to have different different um, uh, budgets, right? And then the ability to train is going to be different. So that's going to lead to um, this imbalance, to be sure. But is the is the answer to that? Well, let's just throw more money uh, at police departments. Let's centralize training. Well, you know, perhaps, uh, but that hasn't proven to be effective uh you know in the past we seriously have to think about the numbers of police that we have in the united states i mean you know if you go to europe if you go to latin america you know comparable countries and you look at the number of police you come back here to the united states you can't drive anywhere you can't go out anywhere without seeing police we are over policed and so if we think about that right even when crime goes down, no one ever says this is the power of police unions. Like maybe we need to bring down the number of police. We don't need as many anymore. No, we pump more money into it. And now we're talking about lowering the age uh, requirements from 21 to 18. I don't need somebody who's just watching SpongeBob now walking around trying to be law enforcement. So, you know, we need to have a real conversation. What does it mean to equal out training? But also, what does it mean to lower the number of police, bring it down? Right. If we clearly don't need as many as we have had in the past. My final question is, I've been covering police reform legislation across four states for more than a dozen years. And I feel like we're always on the precipice of actually enacting policy. Does it feel like something that we're always approaching but never getting? It does. And, you know, I mean, politics 
occur in political moments, right? And we had this opportunity where the nation's attention was looking at policing in the summer of 2020, and that opportunity has been lost, unfortunately. And that's, I think, part of what we see and, and perhaps what you're feeling, because I certainly have, feel, have felt it as well. We get these moments, these opportunities, and this is really American history, right, where we have opportunities to do something positive, to actually enact some reforms, and then you have those who don't want to do anything, who benefit from the status quo, who hold the line. Fraternity order police is good at that, right? Holding the line. And then the political will moves. The political will dissipates. And then we're in a situation where we find ourselves now that four years later, you know, the only money that is available is to increase training and it's year by year. So or increase funding for training and it's year by year. So I think your, your, your assessment is right. We have these moments, but we don't seize the opportunity. And then the moment passes. That was Hassan Kwame Jeffries, a professor of history at The Ohio State University and the host of the Teaching Hard History podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Coming up. We're talking with Republican Representative Phil Plummer about his attempts to bring police reform to the floor of the Ohio House. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Are you there, Representative Plummer? Yes, hi, Anna. I'm here. Thank you. (laughs) And Brian Steele. Executive Vice President of Columbus's Fraternal Order of Police. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with the latest news. Governor Mike DeWine's push to build a training facility that departments from across Ohio could access at little to no cost. Brian, do you support the effort? Uh, yeah, 100%. The Fraternal Order of Police and law enforcement in whole, we will always support additional training. And Representative Plummer, uh, same question. I know that in the recent sort of quasi-capital budget, I'll call it. Uh, there was one-time training money, but how do you, where do you come down on making it more permanent? You know, I support Governor DeWine's initiative 100%. I think we should have more regional training facilities so there's better access for everybody across the state of Ohio. Yeah, funding's a problem. You know, even my career, 30-year career as a law enforcement officer, funding's been a moving target. We, we had extra money this year, so we properly funded the police officers, but who's to say we can do that again the next General Assembly? I want to take a call from Amy in Marion Village. Welcome to All Sides. Hello. Hi, Amy. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you great. Okay. So I, what my comment is that I used to think that the solution to um, this adversarial relationship between the general public and police might be solved by Uh, a job rotation sort of system like we see at the Honda plant and various other businesses. So that would take police, put them in a position of of doing desk duty for a while or traffic duty or whatever, so that they would um, stop looking at 
um, people who are suspected of crime as immediately being guilty would change their dynamics and more humanize them. Do you I mean, don't know about that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, do you do you think it would help them like with burnout? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Exactly right. We see burnout with teachers. We see burnout in a lot of different pr- professions. And and uh, I I would I used to think that that might help. Um, I'm not so sure now. We've got an entire population that's armed to the teeth, <laughs> black or white, male, female. It doesn't seem to matter. We've got way too many guns. And- Thank you so much for your comment, uh, Brian. Where do you come down on burnout and on? I think the FOP had reservations about constitutional carry. Yeah, so I guess, well, first, Amy, thank you for your question. Um, when I hear adversarial relationships, I've worked the street a long time, predominantly inner cities, community of color. I have people telling me I'm supposed to have an adversarial relationship with the community I serve. I just don't see that. Um, the officer's very small part of what we do is actually arresting somebody, actually writing tickets. We do so much more. I feel supported in the area I police, and I feel uh, I 100% support the majority of the citizens in the areas I police. My job is, part of my job, is to go out there and root out the evil, the crime that's keeping people locked in their doors. As the professor said, he does not want to go out there and be a victim of a crime, correct? That is a fundamental part of our job. As for constitutional carry, the Fraternal Order of Police, we opposed constitutional carry. We did not necessarily believe it'd be a rise of crime. We just did not want to have something as as powerful as a weapon and not know how to use that. We were more worried that somebody was gonna shoot themselves in a foot without any training. We would never allow someone just to drive a car without some kind of training. That was the FOP's pushback. Representative Plummer, I was on the House floor with you in June of 2020 when you and Representative Cindy Abrams outlined a 15-point plan for professionalizing policing here in Ohio. And I want to play a clip from that press conference. We want to really professionalize this profession. You know, these guys are working hard. They need to be properly paid so they're not working three and four jobs and over time. Then they come to work, you know, tired and grumpy and we wonder why we have problems. So let's really... Increase their pay and increase their training and hold them accountable. We need to look at the span of control. We need more supervision on the streets with the line officers. As we've seen with this tragic death, there weren't any supervisors there that could have said, hey, time out, guys. He's had enough, let him up. We need supervision to watch the troops. So, Representative Plummer, that was you just about four years ago. And Republicans control the House, the Senate, the governor's mansion. Um, Why hasn't this legislation or similar legislation moved forward you know we're a conservative caucus you know we we support the second amendment and like um brian said there's not an adver- adversarial relationship with the police in the community out there there's a few activists it's less than one percent that you know suck the air out of the room and um voice their displeasure from the police departments but the police departments are supported by the communities they are they work hard they're good people but like i said in my statement we need to properly pay these officers so they're not working overtime all the time or working side jobs to make ends meet. Like I said, let's professionalize the profession and support these guys, these men and women out there. I mean, things are going to get worse with 12 million illegals crossing the borders. You know, these are armies coming into our communities as we're seeing in New York. So we need to support these officers and give them the proper training and equipment and the pay they deserve. What has been the, I guess, the sticking point, though? Uh, you know, why hasn't this legislation got hearings, got passed, got enacted? You know, we we traveled across the state of Ohio and talked to many different police departments. I think the sticking point was some of the union members did not like it, and they they got to Representative Abrams, and she killed the bill. 
I mean, I'm, I'd be happy to sit down and work on these issues. I mean, my, my biggest concern is we need a license board like we have in our other professions of medical lawyers, somebody that oversees a police officer license. And if we have bad cops, we all agree we need to get rid of the bad cops. But, you know, 99% of the cops are good officers, but the few bad ones make it bad for everybody. Ryan, where did you come down on some of those reforms in 2020? So let's look at licensing. Right now, a police officer, we have a certification. We looked at it as sort of a play of a word. So you can certainly have your certification revoked and you can no longer be a police officer. This this was led by the attorney general. It was a Republican-backed bill. We looked at it simply from a union standpoint. A standpoint, it was an end around, in our opinion, to collective bargaining and trying to take away binding arbitration. In theory, an officer could be disciplined, found by an arbitrator, arbitrator that you did not violate anything. Therefore, you're not going to have your certification revoked. But this board, this licensing agency, could decide on their own. No, we're going to we're going to take away his license anyway. We didn't see the the equity and our quality in that. I want to ask you both about qualified immunity. Now, that's something that we've been having conversations a lot lately, and there was an effort, it doesn't appear to be going anywhere right now, to get it on the ballot in front of voters. So what's the FOP's position on qualified immunity? So qualified immunity, some of the individuals that talk about it aren't quite telling you the whole story, right? Some of the narrative is we can go out there with an impunity and do whatever we want to do and we're not held accountable. Completely not true. If the court finds that we violated someone's Fourth Amendment rights, qualified immunity is absolutely stripped. It has been stripped and it will always be stripped. And then the officer could be sued. I break this down layman's terms. If I was to pull over, let's just say... um, Let's say an individual who doesn't believe in the government, okay, um, some kind of, not the words constitutionalist, I can't remember, uh, a militiaman, we've had him in town. I pull you over, I write you a ticket. Without qualified immunity, they can go down to the courthouse and put a lien on my house just for writing a ticket. Think of how something like that would have a detrimental effect on law enforcement. You simply would not be able to do your job. Representative Plummer, um, one of the criticisms conservatives often levy at teachers' unions is that they sometimes defend bad policies or bad teachers. Would it then stand to maybe logically reason that perhaps critics have some merit when they accuse police unions of defending bad officers or bad policies? You know, I've I've worked on both sides of the issue. I was in the union and I was in the management, so I see both sides of it. But they do tend to support bad officers. You know, Brian mentioned this police board. Well, I stacked that board with the majority of law enforcement officers where they could they could judge their own people, you know, and they could clean their own houses. So there has to be a check and balance. But I'd also like to touch on qualified immunity. If they pass qualified immunity, it'll ruin the profession as we know it. Cops will leave in droves and there'll be nobody to police society. So that is a terrible idea. We will never pass that in the House. Um, that, That would be a disaster for the law enforcement professionals. I guess this question is for both of you. Do you think there's a way to come together to reach some agreement on a certain number of reforms? Uh, Brian, we'll start with you. We can always we could always sit down and talk about something. The Fraternal Order of Police, uh, we represent the men and women of uh, Ohio policing and certainly in the state. We will never take a knee in darkness. We like to say we'll always light a candle in dialogue. We will talk to anybody. We are bipartisan. We are not on a Republican side. We're not on a Democratic side. We want to sit down with any legislator, whether that be the state or our local council members, and let's talk about it. Unfortunately, being, you know, quote unquote, the big bad police union, we're often left out of conversations, whether it's locally or in the state. And again, not just legislative conversations, community conversations were often left out. 
Representative Plummer, are you hopeful that, I mean, I know policy is iterative. Sometimes it takes two, three, four, five general assemblies to get legislation across the finish line. Do you have hope for reform? You know, I hate the word reform because I don't think the police officers need change. They need supported, not lifted. Um, one thing myself and Brian differ on, I've, I've dealt with a lot of small departments who are not properly trained. You have some bad actors that jump from small departments to the small departments that they get in trouble and they shouldn't be police officers. That's the group of people that I'd like to, you know, really watch. I mean, Columbus Police Department, they're professionals. They do a great job. You know, the Dayton Police Department, your larger departments, they have it right. But the smaller departments just don't have the assets to really, you know, weed out the bad apples. And they have the same responsibilities. They can take your life, liberty and freedoms away just like a Columbus police officer can. Um, I, I agree. I agree with the legislator on that. Some of the small departments, unfortunately, are not very well paid. They're not the very high standards to get on. And if you look at almost all the ones he's talking about, they're non-unionized departments. They're not as professional departments. Yes. Uh, final question for both of you, uh, given that we have just about a minute left. Where do you come down on lowering the age of police officers in Ohio from 21 to 18? I guess I'll jump in first, Anna. So uh, the FOP, we oppose that. We don't believe in lowering age. If anything, we want to raise the age. We want to raise the standards. We want to raise educational standards, especially here locally. Um, An OSU professor talked to our city council in 2020, and they were asking them, they're saying something that affects of surely if we hire more minorities, we give more training, this will make it a better reformed police department. He had said you have to hire the highest quality of character and then compensate them, and that's how you reform a police department. Representative Plummer? Yeah, and I agree with Brian on this one. I mean, I ran a jail and we hired 18-year-old kids and they're just not ready for the stress and, you know, what they had to go through dealing with, you know, career criminals. That, that's difficult. So they're they're too young at 18. I think 21 is a good standard we need to stick by. That was, Re- that was Republican Representative Phil Plummer. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you. And thank you to Brian Steele, Executive Vice President of Columbus's Fraternal Order of Police. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.